Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby coming to you from the Digital Shelf Institute studios in Boston with the stories that caught our eye this week. Rob Gonzalez is here with me, fresh from his Thanksgiving gorge. Hey, Rob. Hello. Uh, so, Rob, where do we start this week? So, I want to start with a personal story. Oh, all right. I was dropping my daughter off at preschool, and I've got this routine. I drop her off, give her a big hug, open my phone to the Dunkin' Donuts app, place an order for pickup, and then by the time I get to the Dunkin' Donuts, it's, I'm just, I walk in, I grab my coffee. Sometimes I grab my coffee and bagel. And don't I have to talk to anyone. Don't have to talk to anybody. Don't miss a stride. There's all these people. It's it's like, you know, when Easy Pass came out and you had Easy Pass and like all these suckers were, were having to get their change out and like <laughs> wait in line and you had Easy Pass and it's like, See ah, yeah. suckers, you know, it feels like that, right? Yeah. So this morning, the app works like it sets up my, my cart to check out. And then the checkout's broken. And so, you know, I could, I, I guess, have gone to Dunkin' and bought the coffee, but my, my this is kind of funny in hindsight, but my reaction was, like, I guess I'm not drinking coffee today. <laughs> That's why if Rob's a little slow on this. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I do see a coffee cup. Well, I cheat. I, I, I cheated on Dunkin'. I got coffee from a... <laughs> from a competitor this morning because <laughs> it was just quicker. But yeah, I, th I think this, this digital age, we're spoiled, man. No, I, mean, I agree. I agree. I have the, the same thing where if uh, there's a restaurant here uh, called Clover, um, really cool company that started out as a food truck in Boston and is now growing. And I, I use their app, which is great. And I did the same thing the other day. I was like, Oh, I don't want to like talk to someone and then I have to wait for them to make it. And I, I did exactly the same thing, and I just went downstairs to the cafeteria and put together a box. Yes, it, man, it's it's just crazy how far this goes. This is why um, I mean I know the the Nike won't sell on Amazon story is getting old at this point, but you you got to wonder how um, if any introduction in friction between the consumer and the thing that they want to purchase. It, any introduction of friction at all these days yeah. is, is dangerous, right? Yeah. Um, now, Benedict Evans had a, had a quote that I thought was pretty good in his newsletter. He's a, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz out in San Francisco. And the quote he had is, Nike won't sell directly to Amazon anymore. Amazon is having exactly the same push and shove with brands and suppliers that Walmart did a generation ago. Welcome to retail, <laughs> is the quote. And actually, it reminded me of... Um, there was a, a wonderful, wonderful book. I mean, this is maybe a 15-year-old book at this point called um, The Walmart Effect, which is, and this is back when Walmart was just, you know, completely like, reshaping the industry and small towns across America. And small towns across America and all, yeah. I mean, just utterly, utterly dominant, right? Yeah. And uh, there's a chapter in the book, I think it's chapter eight, I think it was published actually in the New Yorker as a standalone article called The Man Who Said No to Walmart. And it was the story of the CEO of Snapper Mowers. You know those uh, bright cherry red lawn mowers? Yeah. They're high quality. They're American made, meant to last a lifetime, all that type of stuff. And so Walmart was saying, "We're this is going to be the exclusive Walmart brand. We're not going to carry any of the other Walmart brands. And he said, no, I'm not going to sell through Walmart. And so the... You know, the Nike story, I guess, has been news, but it's an, it's it's a good reminder to, to uh, realize that, yeah, this... 
this push pull has been going on forever. Right. It's news, but it's also the same kind of, you know, jockeying for brand power and position and, and consumer mindset that that's always been happening. And yet retail has continued. So, uh, you know, I think the impact I, that we do see, I think, is the, you know, small businesses are struggle in this environment and, again, have to differentiate on experience. And But that, that sort of trough that it takes for that realization to hit and then the people coming online to create that, you know, coming, you know, becoming, setting up brick and mortar stores that lean into that, it's sort of like where bookstores have, like, have become more resonant right now because people want that experience and they've leaned into that rather than trying to be the superstore of books. Uh, they are catering and, and curating. Yeah. And, and some companies are doing a good job working through it and other companies get bought by Latote. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. This story uh, where um, sort of rent the runway um, kind of approach of Latote has now bought Lord and Taylor, what uh, founded in 1826, bought by a seven-year-old e-commerce company. Uh, yeah, Latote founded in 2012 for uh, the price of less than $100 million. Uh, Lord and Taylor was purchased out of the Hudson Bay Company a few weeks ago. I mean, this, this is, Lord and Taylor is an iconic retail name. Yeah, yeah. And Latote in purchasing Lord and Taylor, I, I think you you saw that they put um, the Latote's employee as the chief merchant now of the so old Lato retail chain. Yeah, Latote's chief merchandising officer is now the head of Lord & Taylor. And so there's a few things that jumped out at the, to me about this. One is, on the one hand, it's uh, it seems like the trend of digitally native brands sort of reaching their best possible scale and re realizing we need stores, particularly, I think, in the fashion and apparel world where people want to feel touch, right? Um, and then it's also, of course, the the difficulty of department stores and how they've sort of lost their way and and uncurated. Well, and I, I guess Lord & Taylor was never uncurated. They knew who their customer was and probably know who it is. It's just not interesting enough compared to e-commerce to bring traffic into stores. Yeah, I mean, th there's... At a high level, there's a lot to like about this. Yeah. I mean, the, the department store model clearly needs a little bit of a fresh look to make it more relevant to modern consumers. And the idea of renting higher higher end, higher quality clothing, I mean, Latote's figured that out, yep. and that could be a in really interesting draw. On the other hand, it's hard to not to see this a little bit as AOL buying Time Warner. Right, where is that? Where, you know, what, what do you really know about about brick and mortar retail? You're a seven year old company. Um, like I, I just remember even more recently than that, the JC Penney hired a CEO out of Apple. You know, the guy that was the, the the head of Apple stores, and it was a bit of a disaster, right? And it was a disaster because JC Penney tried to walk away from its lower and middle middle class uh, and base and tried to go up market and sort of forgot who they were. And it's it's hard for a brand to transition from one thing to another thing. It's hard for a brand to, you know, Lord & Taylor's been around 193 years. It's hard for them to be both Lord & Taylor and a new thing at the same time. So I don't know. I mean, there, there's there's clearly risk also in this in yeah. this approach. It's not just Latote getting storefront. It's not just Lord & Taylor getting rentals. It's also 
going to be a huge cultural and operational challenge. And, and yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the article, and we'll we'll post a link to this on our show page, but a, a lot of the article talks about uh, exactly what you're speaking of, which is the the big push in these early days is going to be the systems work to make the e-commerce uh, rental experience and combining that with how the stores then deal with that. They want people to be able to walk in and have the the customer profile be known. What are they looking at? Creating kind of like um, show fields. Uh, they've sort of reinvented the department store experience to tie in more to what consumers expect from online and creating that sort of seamless experience. And that's what they want to pull off. But that's, it's a, it's a big, big bet. Yeah. There's so many questions too, that, you know, you think about a Bonobos uh, guide shop, they call them, right? And you can't try something on and then walk out of the store with it. Everything that's in the guide shop is for you trying it on. And then you place the order and, and, they ship it to you from a warehouse somewhere. And like, I just wonder if they're going to go for really a showroom model at Lord and Taylor where it's very experiential and they're dedicating a lot less space within the store to holding inventory. And maybe they're using the Latotes logistical network to ship the rentals and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, that, that is just a huge, it, it looks like hard. Lord and Taylor still, they're still going to have stuff you can buy as well. So they're actually mixing the model. So you can come in some stuff you can rent. Uh, and then you can also buy into your, like, what does that mean? It, it's a, it's a big challenge. And, and, you know, last year, Lord and Taylor did a 1.4 billion in sales, but they lost 114 million. Uh, and Latode is not profitable yet. And now they have the debt from this, acquisition. So, you know, there's a lot of headwinds in their way, but I do think this trend of let's bring uh, brick and mortar and e-commerce together in a very curated way is really interesting. It'll be, it'll be fascinating to watch. Yeah. I wish them luck. I mean, it, anything that brings life in back to the department stores, I think people would welcome. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of, you know, retail being retail and Benedict Evans' old quote there, um, retail is also just hard in every conceivable way. And e-commerce introduces all kinds of new hard. One story that came out uh, before the Thanksgiving break was on BuzzFeed News that it was entitled, Her Amazon Purchases Are Real, The Reviews Are Fake. And she, over the last year, had tens of thousands of dollars of purchases on Amazon. So this, this uh, to explain who she is, so she, this was a, a, a reviewer. This is a reviewer, yeah. like a professional reviewer. This is a, you know, a gig economy job that I didn't know existed. But so she, basically the, the, the process is, she buys something on Amazon in, with her own credit card, under her own name, it gets shipped to her house, and then she puts a review. And it, because she purchased the product that she's reviewing, it's a verified review on Amazon. Right. So, and she, because she's a professional reviewer, she does the review, right. You know, she's got a picture or a video of the review. She's descriptive about the product and so on and so forth. Then the company that when the review goes up, the company that uh, produced the product then pays her. So reimburses her for the product and, and pays her for having done the through review. Like, I think through like an Amazon car, like a gift card. Gift, like, yeah. yeah. It's not like they're not sending her a check. They're, they're, 
it's a it's it's a gift card. So she's she's done thousands of reviews this yeah. way, and this is the type of stuff. I mean, we have to get somebody on the podcast that does review analytics at yeah. depth. I remember the review meta guys were making claims like seventy five percent of new reviews on Amazon are fake or paid or pro. You know, this, I see I see stories like this, and I think, well, geez, you know, she's written more reviews in the last year than probably me and all my friends and everyone I know have written in aggregate. You just can't compete with the volume of somebody who's doing it professionally. Um, and this woman who they call Jessica, you know, one of her things was, because uh, uh, these are all third-party sellers that are doing this, according to the article. And she was saying, uh, you know, I'm just a pawn in their marketing strategy. Like, uh, she, I, think she, yeah. I think she's 26, but, uh, you know, Amazon says they prevent more than 13 million uh, fake reviews last year. Um, but sure, but at, at at the scale they're talking about, right. I, thirteen million fake review prevention is small small potatoes. Yeah, right? a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this in the context of Nike and sort of the concern about counterfeit products, and it always comes because Amazon's uh, objective is scale. Some of the niceties of what it would take to really pay attention in a in a in a bigger way to these uh, issues are tough. I don't. Yeah, I mean. I mean, they spent, what, $400 million last year on fraud prevention and things yeah. like that. I mean, it's not like they're not, they're not, they're they're trying. not trying. Right. And I think the, the people that have studied um, fraud material on Amazon, the numbers, it's small, it's small numbers, right? But it's still reputationally damaging. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I look at the review things. And, uh, reviews and fraud are, I think, two different problems. Reviews, yes. I wonder how much they even matter. Um, you know, I know the star rating matters a lot, but... You know what I mean? Yeah, well, the article says that that uh, the reviews don't impact um, search results, but they do impact sales. Um, so a consulting company pattern said that a one-star jump in a rating leads to a 26% jump in sales. Yeah, I have no doubt that that's true. But it's the, it's the star rating that matters, and people are gaming the star rating. And I just – I'm not sure – how much the actual content of the reviews matters as much as it used to. I mean, I, for one, find the Q&A a little bit more valuable. I find sites like Wirecutter that do the recommendations a little bit more valuable than the reviews themselves. You know, you, I know Yelp does a really, really good job um, policing their reviews for restaurants so that the Yelp reviews tend to be, you know, on average more authentic. But I found, you know, Yelp reviews for myself to be relatively useless. And, yeah. Right, and I also, I love this, the story of this, uh, they, they call this woman, uh, Jessica and, you know, just, she's in her twenties and lives with her boyfriend who's a chemist. And so she's like, doesn't trust the health and beauty products on the site. Cause her chemist boyfriend has found toxic ingredients in analyses of the unregulated products. And then she's afraid to use the electronic appliances she receives, which often come with incomprehensible instructions written in both English and Chinese. She took photos of one product, a foot spa without adding water or plugging it in. <laughs> So, uh, uh, did you say foot spa? Foot spa. <laughs> All right. So uh, it's it's a lifestyle for her, but she doesn't tell any of her friends she does it. So that might tell you something. Yeah. The scale of this is so big, right? That being able to keep on top of the millions of products that are being added every day to Amazon sites, that's just... It, it almost seems like an insurmountable problem. It, it takes constant movement in strategy to be able to stop it. I think it's hard, but 
I don't know that it's insurmountable. I think the issue for me, and there's probably people that have thought about this. This is why I want to get somebody on a podcast that that's an expert in this space. But to me, I'm not sure what the best customer experience desired outcome is. Like if you work your way back from a typical shopper and what's helpful for the shopper back to delivering a great review experience, what is that? What does that actually look like? I mean, you know, I, I, we could sit here and philosophize and say, well, you know, all the reviews are absolute are, are correct reviews and they're authentic and they're from the people who shopped and all this type of stuff. But you know, it's, it's unclear to me that that's actually the most useful impact to the shopper, right? Like people who buy stuff and review tend to spend time to review when they're angry more than, more than when they're excited. And there's all these types of skewing me- mechanics to it. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it, there, there's a piece to me that thinks, well, you know, Amazon's doing a pretty good job. People find the star ratings to be really, really useful. I mean, the, the sales rank stat that you had from pattern is proof that people find the stars to be really, really useful. Yeah. And maybe that's good enough, right? It's it's a little bit different than the fraud problem. The fraud problem, again, we're talking, you know, way less than 1% of products on Amazon are, are likely fraudulent. But it's that's, to me, more reputationally damaging this, than this review problem. The review problem is harder for me to wrap my, you know, my own head around and, yeah. and understand like what, what actually is the goal here? What does good look like and why? And there's a potential opportunity here for more established brands in that uh, if this, if this sense uh, in out in the ether of, wow, if, if it's not a brand I recognize, it could very well be counterfeit or it could be, or these reviews might be being gamed. If that, if that builds up in the consumer's consciousness, they might start to become uh, less price sensitive and more trust sensitive. And I think that that's all to the benefit of big brands. And so the more, like you said, the more they lean into the fullness of the product page to have Q&A, to have all of these other things really robustly created, the more trust they can build in consumers and they might divert some of their behavior to go towards trust rather than than price. I mean, just thinking out loud here, I think you're honest on If for a consumer that that really deeply cares, the review content is likely insufficient. You yes. know, the, the the review star rating it's almost maybe, necessary but not sufficient. Yeah, it's like the review star rating gets you to a point where you can narrow down to forty different things or whatever that you might be thinking of. But you're going to rely on some type of outside of Amazon ranking of some kind. You know, whether it's Wirecutter or or whether it's one of these uh, YouTube um, subject matter experts like the, there's a guy who's a blender master on YouTube <laughs> that does all the head-to-head <laughs> blender comparisons. That's awesome. Um, or, you know, you're going to be going to, to somebody who, outside of Amazon who's expert to it um, in order to narrow down your choice. And and you're going to be using Q&A and chat and other other ways to get more detailed information about the product and isn't typically available on just the feature bullets and, and packaging and things like that. So I think the future is for the concerned consumers probably outside of reviews at this point. It's it's some other trust mechanism that the brands are going to invest in. And TBD, I think Q, Q&A seems to be pretty promising. It's seen a tremendous amount of growth. And, and I think there were some stats that show that it's catching up to reviews for some some types of purchases in terms of in terms of power. So yeah, it'll be interesting to to watch as you know as Amazon continues to scale and as uh, and as 
the these sort of concerns bubble? What what is the shift, and what is, what are the opportunities that Amazon creates for brands to lean into to to build that trust factor? Because yeah. that's probably where the opportunity is. You won't ever cut all these weeds down, but creating processes where the serious uh, manufacturers can really represent their products more and more authentically. I think that's where the opportunity Amazon will lean into. Yeah, and then outside of Amazon, I mean, if you want to. Outside, nobody has the reviews that Amazon has. Right. So there's even more opportunity to be disruptive because you you almost can't play the same volume game that Amazon's playing. You got to do something different. So there, let me tell you what my dream for reviews is. And it's never going to happen unless someone builds it. But this is what I want. I want to filter to reviews for people like me, right? So like for Yelp, for example, um, people go to all my favorite restaurants in Boston are three stars on Yelp. And it's because you go to, you go to the reviews and the reviews say, um, good food, but way too expensive. One star. It's like the expense and the food are two totally different things. If I don't care, you know, 20 bucks versus 30 bucks, don't ding them on the star rating based on that. I just want, you know, I got the guy, I kids and I don't go out that much. And when I go out with my wife, I want the food to be great. Right. And, uh, you see a lot of that type of stuff. And so it's like, you know, middle-aged parents, date night, you know, go yeah. like show me reviews from those people. <laughs> middle-aged <laughs> parent date night. <laughs> Shaved head. Shaved, yeah, bald dude. <laughs> Occasionally irate. <laughs> <laughs> so when you look at, because like Open Table has the top rating, but then they always want you to rate the individual categories of the restaurant. Like, yeah. to, to your point, like great for date night. How was the noise? And you know, sometimes I do that if I'm really enthusiastic about a restaurant, but more often than not, I won't do that. But that's, you're right. That's the sort of level of specificity that actually helps because it divides out the sort of the cranks that are just taking one thing and making that the reason yeah. why they gave it, the one. It's like, review. I, I want to filter out reviews from anybody under 25, like full stop on every site that I'm at. Right. And it, <laughs> that's just, wow. It, no, but it's, it's, it, it, seriously, it's, it's just one of those things. It's, um, they, their concerns and their stage of life and all the thing, the things that they care about are, you know, in broad, broad strokes different than me. And, uh, I don't know. That's that's my dream is to be able to filter reviews that way. So I think if you're trying, if you're looking for a way to compete with this volume that game that Amazon has, that's an interesting path to to attack. Well, we now know what Rob's next company will be. Oldcurmudgeonlyreviews.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now we have to go buy the URL. <laughs> well, we're go we're heading off to buy a URL, uh, but we look forward to uh, reuniting with you next week. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please do, if you have any thoughts on the news of the day, uh, we are on our LinkedIn page or uh, Win Digital Shelf on Twitter. Uh, and thanks again for being part of our community.